Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about the legislative mess. Let's go above the fold with today's headlines. On Tuesday afternoon, as the world waited with bated breath, the jury, which was made up of six white people and six people of color, seven of which are women and five of which are men, delivered a guilty verdict to the Hennepin County judge in the trial of former Minneapolis policeman Derek Chauvin for the murder of 46-year-old George Floyd, an incident that sparked global protests for racial justice last summer and continues to fuel the calls for legislative action on police reform and police brutality. Chauvin was charged and has been convicted of both second and third degree murder, as well as second degree manslaughter charges. The former police officer now faces up to 75 years in prison at his sentencing hearing in eight weeks. Chauvin's conviction is the first of its kind in a long string of killings of unarmed black men by police officers in the United States. To you, Terrell, I want to start because like myself and other people of color, I know this entire year and this trial specifically has been um, has brought about some difficult times and a lot of trauma. What are you feeling and what do you think this means for racial the racial justice movement going forward? Um, nothing. Um, I think I think it's a step in the right direction that there is hope and there's an opportunity that our our country and our justice system will finally do something, right? You can't ignore that. Um, but it was an open and shut case in my personal opinion. You had clear video evidence of a man with his knee on another man's neck as he's crying out for help and mercy, calling out for his dead mother. How else was this trial supposed to go? Was there supposed to be an acquittal? Was there supposed to be an uh, opportunity for um, Chauvin to get off or have limited time? It, It was obvious. And I can't help but think what, what would have happened if the video wasn't there or what would have happened had um, it been a little bit more than a counterfeit bill? What if the crime that he was accused of committing was just a, a tad bit harsher? Would we still be in the same place? Would would um, the legal system have worked out as appropriately as it did? And also not neglecting and not forgetting that the prosecution changed partway through this case And that was the catalyst that changed. An African-American man and um, the attorney general um, stepped up and recognized that this case was not being handled appropriately and felt the need to give it its due diligence and and really lead forward and and present a case that resulted in the guilty verdicts we've heard today. But, um, Caleb, what were some of your reactions? You know, I didn't watch all of the trial, um, but I did watch today when the verdict was issued. And of course, I think it was the right decision. I think that it says a lot knowing that, and I'm not going to assume for both of you, but I know that a lot of people, uh, uh, including myself, were anxious about what the verdict would be. And I think the fact that we were anxious for what you say is... I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to tell what happened, um, says a lot about where we are still. I don't know if this changes anything, even if it is the right decision. Um, there's a lot of, there's, it's not just about the courts making the right decision one time. It's about actually changing the system that gets us here every single time in the first place. Like literally last week, another black man was shot. It keeps happening. Mm -hmm. One good court decision, that's great, but this shouldn't even happen in the first place. So yeah, I think, you know, go ahead, Caleb. So I, am I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy about the decision today, but that doesn't really change anything in terms of what we should be doing tomorrow, which is still keeping with the fight. Right. Um, and you know, the family was speaking after as well as other activists in a press, um, conference. And I mean, we have to, we can't forget that justice would be him still being alive. You know, Mm -hmm. there is no justice, true justice at the end of the day, once his life has been taken, this is the only form of justice we could get. Um, and that's not good enough. It preventing these deaths is what will be good enough treat 
equal treatment by police is what will be good enough. You know, equal justice under the law for all of these cases is when it will be good enough. Um, I don't want to understate what I think that this moment has meant for the the overall conversation in our country. I think that specifically, I mean, obviously, I can say it was a huge catalyst for better conversations among the white people in my life, and I'm and I'm grateful for that. Um, but I do hope that this this verdict and this conviction doesn't allow people to believe, think that their work is done or that they they've done their part and they've made their change and that there's nothing else for us to do right like we 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 joked off off air but i think that you know we should say it because people will act like oh well we fixed it you know we fixed the system <laughs> because we got this one conviction and that could not be further from the truth yeah um and i think that it's just really important like you were like you were just saying caleb um this is one thing we must keep going forward we must keep asking for accountability we must push forward police reform legislation mm-hmm. um this is the tip of the iceberg would still be generous yeah and yeah and two things that i feel are relevant to to acknowledge is the supreme court still upheld and is the law of the land of qualified immunity for officers in these situations that make these type of charges extremely difficult um you have the george floyd policing act in the house ready to go, but no clear way to the president's desk, even after having conversations and um, listening to CNN as they were preparing for the verdict. Um, ben Jones made a reference and I called him out because he was like, there's no black people in Idaho. Um, but he he did recognize that there are people marching in the streets in Detroit, New York, probably South Carolina, um, but in places like Idaho where our population isn't that large. There wasn't a, a sense of exhale. There was a, a little bit of a, a sigh of, um, is this going to be the next all lives matter movement down at our Capitol? Is this going to be another opportunity for that to bubble up? Um, and I think that's why I, I feel as harsh as it sounds that nothing has really changed. Oh, and to the more specific point of the, of the actual case, I will, I watched a, a lot of it. Um, I'd say arguably, you know, 80% of the, um, witness testimony and then the closing arguments. And it was a sound case, you know, not just the video. It was a sound case. The evidence was there. The prosecution had a great case. And I think that it would have been very hard to get, I mean, it would be very hard. All of the defense arguments were super slim and, and the thing that was, you know, tough is that they they only had to prove somewhat of a reasonable doubt. You know, if they could get some doubt in there, they only needed one juror to be hung. Um, but I think that it can't go understated that unlike other cases where this has been much more difficult, this was a very sound legal case and the prosecution just had to do their job. I don't think this is a, like Terrell, what you said about has anything really changed? I don't know if anything has really changed, but I do think this is a motivator to keep fighting. I'm all for the, when something somewhat good happens, like take a moment, be in that moment, take a moment to be in that moment and then the wake up and then let's get right back into it. And I think that's what we need to do now. Earlier this week, the white house and house of representatives made headlines with the announcement of an exploratory effort to expand the Supreme Court. Specifically, President Biden signed an executive order to create a presidential commission to explore the um, integrity of the Supreme Court and the um, longevity of adding new justices, while the House of Representatives started putting into works legislation to increase the current justice count from 9 to 13. So, Torrance, for you, I have a very simple question. Should the Supreme Court be expanded? <laughs> Call me Joe Biden, but I'd like to have it studied more. I'd like to understand further. Oh, here's the thing. I'll, I'll say that. So, like, what I can say is that I do know that the number of Supreme Court justices is not in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, that the it, it can be expanded and has been several times, I think upwards of six times in our country's history. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as a constitutional matter goes, as someone who wants to be a lawyer, um, I do not, it's obviously not a constitutional issue. Um, I think that because we live in such political times that are very, such, so partisan, um, that this seems like such a insane notion 
because we have kept the same number for for all of like modern American history. But I would also say like a lot of other things in both our politics, our society, and our culture right now, we are at huge inflection points about how we how we make changes in our democracy so that it continues to work for the way it was intended to. So I'm not going to say outright that I believe it should be, but I do think that it's studying the integrity of the courts is just as important because I think that we try, especially Republicans and and, and sitting justices try to make it seem like the court is completely nonpartisan. And that's not true. And it's not being honest about, about things. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. that we do, if the courts don't have any integrity, if, if the voting body, the the majority of voters in this country do not, do not believe um, that they are being represented. And Five of those appointees that are on the Supreme Court were appointed by uh, Republican presidents who did not win the majority vote. So I think that studying the integrity of the Supreme Court is a good move. And once I knew more about it and what their findings are and what we believe it does to the um, efficacy and integrity of our judicial system, I can't make a sound sound or a decisive answer on that. But I do think this is an intelligent way to go about finding that answer. I am in complete agreement with you on this one, Torrance. I don't know, since since the issues kind of started being raised, um, what, last year now or a couple years ago, I've never really known what my position on this is. <laughs> and like you said, call me Joe Biden. I am in full support of understanding and studying the integrity of the courts more to come to a decision it doesn't feel like just putting more justices on a court on the Supreme court solves the real problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I'm against it though, but I'm just kind of in this position where, okay, so what we do it. And then what in a few years we have a 17 person court. I don't know if that math adds up, but a 17 person court because Republicans did it too. I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, Definitely before I come to any conclusion, I would like to see the study that Joe Biden in the administration has commissioned. I mean, you both know, I say go nuclear and impeach one of the current justices and and write a lot of wrongs. Like I, I struggle with this because I, I've shared this with y'all off air. I feel like it's stacking the deck, right? I feel like it, it comes off as we are doing this to... Um, even a playing field. But at the same time, we know that we're now going to, if it bumped up to 13, put in four new justices that can be very young and outlive some of the current justices. And it it just feels unethical to me versus impeaching a justice who potentially lied under oath and then replacing them with someone else. But I digress. Uh, <laughs> but something interesting that our Michigan correspondent and I have spoke about quite a few times is the slow moving nature of the Supreme Court and how our circuit courts work, um, which started to open my eyes a lot to this conversation of if it were to expand to 13, you can have a rotating panel of judges so you can hear more cases and action can actually happen at that level versus what we see currently of you have the same group on the panel that their docket can only go so long and there can only be so many things that happen. Um, and when I started reflecting on that and thinking of those areas that did shift my mind of this could be more positive than negative. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, they also, I believe that this commission is looking into um, as far as integrity goes, that also includes um, whether or not there should be instituted term limits mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Supreme court appointees as well. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm with you like a broader, like on a more broad scale um, with kind of everything with my politics is does it work and is it efficient? So like, like what you said, our judicial system moves incredibly slowly and is not efficient um, on pretty much all fronts. So anything that's going to uh, increase both integrity and efficiency is something that I can get behind. Per Bloomberg News, uh, Los Angeles Mayor Garrett, Eric Garcetti has proposed a guaranteed income program for people living below the federal poverty line, specifically households with at least one minor and some COVID-19 hardship. The program would set aside $24 million of the city's next year budget for monthly $1,000 payments to about 2,000 low-income families. Garcetti said, how many decades are we going to keep fighting a war on poverty with the same old results? This is one of the cheapest insertions of resources to permanently change people's lives. 
So my question to both of you is, what is your reaction to this kind of policy? Uh, we'll start with you, Torrance. Honestly, I'm always like, you know, really interested in these kind of like new progressive policy ideas that like, like Edgar Garcetti says in this, like, are we going to keep doing the same thing and getting the same results? Because um, mm-hmm. after a while, you know, like, like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, no changing results. Uh, this is insane. After a while, it seems like it might be intentional, right? To keep a cycle of poverty and not actually to address the problem. But that's because poverty is um, so intertwined with racism, with systemic racism, with the wealth, um, the wealth, the inequ- wealth inequality, um, and the wage gap. So I think that this is a great, this is a, an improvement on addressing that problem, but I don't think that it goes to the core of the problem. And I also think that it eventually becomes a political problem mm-hmm. um, because a lot of people don't take kindly to these kinds of things. Um, but I asked them if you're not okay with this and you're going to need to open your eyes to the broader reality of, of the economy and the way that we've disenfranchised people um, from opportunity. So I think that it's a great way, a great thing. I'm happy that it's a pilot program. Let's see what happens. I, I'm always open for a big, robust new idea um, when we think it's going to yield some results. But if it doesn't yield results, then I think that we have to change course. But I want to poke the hole that I don't believe it's comprehensive um, to the problem. Yeah. I echo everything you said, Torrance. Um it's hard to live in our country right now, both because of topics we've talked about in in multiple episodes and in this one, but also because the cost of living in this country is ridiculously high and disenfranchises and bumps so many individuals out of the system. And while I'm appreciative that we're speaking to parts of that because of COVID, I can't help but think about you and I at Grand Valley and um, just different conversations that student Senate uh, was having around. What does it mean to have a living wage? What does it mean to have a system in place that ensures that every person here can actually live a, a healthy life in the country? So just like you mentioned, I'm appreciative and I'm, I'm glad that there's an effort to do something, but that's not sustainable. That's not going to fix the problem. It, Hell, it might even barely solve one of the symptoms of the problem, right? Um, so encourage, but just hoping for more. I think I'm kind of on the same page as both of you on this. I really see um, cities as places that we can test policy, but it comes to political willpower to do it. So I'm actually pretty interested to see how this program will help. Again, if it'll help at all, I have no idea. But I think that's kind of the point is that we can test these policies. And it kind of feels like we don't do that, but we should. So I'm kind of happy that that the mayor is taking this step. And we've continued to, you know, and we've continued to um, use policies that fail to yield, yield the results that we're looking for or, or fail to be the solutions that we are they think they're going to be. So before you joined the team, Torrance, I recall we had a very robust conversation about Chuck Schumer as majority leader, what the future of Congress was going to look like, all of these aspects, right? And I promise, Caleb, this will not be a rant on Chuck Schumer and my personal opinions about him, whether they're pro or con. I think the audience wants to hear it. (laughs) Give the people what they want, Terrell. But I do think we should have a conversation about where Congress is right now, right? We cheered and were happy about COVID relief passing, even though it was along party lines and was a little scary there for a hot second. And now we're watching as the majority in the House slowly weakens due to um, changes in appointments due to the administration or, unfortunately, some deaths. And... We're also seeing in the Senate this continual stalemate due to one senator in particular that is slowing down and inhibiting our legislative process. Specifically, when we started talking about infrastructure, everyone felt that it might be dead on arrival because um, that one senator decided to come out and say he didn't support the idea of a corporate tax hike. 
Now we look to a parliamentarian that few people knew existed until recently to understand how budget reconciliation works. If there are other maneuvers for the um, Democratic majority to maneuver in the coming session. And I can't help but be called back to Mitch McConnell and the graveyard that he used to have when he was majority leader. Um, The belief that anything that the House passed would die once it got to his desk because he just had no interest in it. Um, so I, I, I want to hear from you. I want to know from y'all, was it Mitch McConnell? Was it his inaction or are we actually seeing a deterioration of one of our institutions and we're seeing the shortcoming and, and the collapse of our Congress? Um, most certainly all of the above. Uh, (laughs) You're right. It's, 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 well, no, it's just not one thing or the other. It's, it's, was Mitch McConnell an obstructionist? 100%. Why was Mitch McConnell an obstructionist? Because he wouldn't bring things to the, to the floor that he thought would get passed that he didn't care for. And he wouldn't bring things to the floor, uh, that he wanted to get passed. He didn't have the votes for. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that it was his, but, but also that speaks to a dysfunction, um, and a failure of efficiency in one of our, um, oldest and what used to be most revered institutions uh it continues to fail um however i think when it comes to schumer i think that we see that this is another one of those tough decisions right like we i was pro put it on the floor force people to vote and make people you know live with those votes live and die with the votes they make as elected officials however that's really easy to say in in concepts and i'm you know i am criticizing myself for that uh and it's different when like you care about the things and you don't want to just put something on the floor that you know will fail when it's a priority um, and not just a priority, something that you deeply believe in, like voting rights. You know what I mean? Like we just throw HR1 out there without the proper heat behind it to, for, to pressure Republicans into voting for it and pressuring moderate Democrats to vote for it. That's going to be a monumental failure. And not just do I think is that shipping you know, the 2022 election down the river, but it's shipping democracy down the river. So I understand the, you know, what Schumer is facing, but also there are other smaller pieces of legislation that we could be pushing um, to get on the floor for votes. Yeah, I have to agree. I, I don't know if I, do I think the Senate has failed Yes, but I don't know if it's a complete failure. I am not an expert on the Senate by any means, but it seems like we're at an inflection point where we could do something about the past several years of of what has made the Senate just kind of slow to nothing. I don't know what it means. And Torrance, kind of like what you said, I think that yeah, it's easier said than done to just throw bills at Republicans and watch them vote no. I think that Schumer's strategy of okay, let's. I mean, it, then again, they've only had they've only had the majority for for a few months now, and they've only really passed one thing. But Republicans haven't used a filibuster yet because we haven't been throwing stuff on the floor yet. So if we can get, I don't know if this strategy will work or not, but if we can get, um, like the politics of this is let's let's actually start to push stuff forward and we're, and let's do it bipartisan for Joe Manchin specifically. I know you, I know you were talking about him <laughs> and in some of the other moderates because let's be honest, Joe Manchin is like the shield for like I don't know four or five others and when we can show them that Republicans don't have any interest in actually working together, then let's go back to the conversation about the filibuster. I don't think I don't have a lot of confidence that'll work. I really don't. I don't think Manchin's just going to stop trying to play his bipartisanship game, which I think is just ridiculous. Um, I think everyone sees right through it too, but that's my, but we, but we, but we like, we're kind of like pigeonholed into that though. Yeah. We, because of the, because of political perceptions, like they are blatantly obstructionist, blatantly partisan, but they feed into the socialization of, of America. Right. So like the culture wars, they stoke the institutional changes that they like to box socialism and the changing of America. Mm-hmm. They use decrepit, old racist, cultural um, norms against us 
And they make it seem like what we're trying to do to help the masses uh, seem like a fundamental shift and change in, in the country that we all quote unquote love so much um, because it's so great. Uh, so I think that that is something that we commonly run into on the Democratic side because like I agree, I think it's for the point is further being made that all of this runs through the filibuster. Um, and that is the yeah. that is a main you know point of obstruction. But a lot of like like for example, gun reform. You know, I I think that gun gun reform is one of those things that feeds into a a socialization of fear around individual liberty about your safety. Um, when no one is trying to take your guns away, but we can't. You know, it has obstructed any um regulation whatsoever. Um, and so I just think that like we do have to be honest about what the political argument is on our side versus how the ease of theirs. I think I don't really felt like I was putting what I was thinking into words very well. I think that what what I really meant by I'm not sure if the Senate is a complete failure yet um, is that I really think the Senate reflects what the country is at right now. And I don't know how you Fair. change that because changing the Senate isn't I don't to me it's not as simple as changing some rules changing the senate is the whole country and I don't really know how to do that <laughs> I don't know where to start with that but that kind of that's kind of what it feels like to me and I might be misdiagnosing it or making the scope way too large but it feels like if we're going to change the senate we need people in there that are actually willing to not only work with each other but try to make the institution better too and right now, it's literally 50-50 because maybe it be somewhat because of the systems of how people are elected, but the country too. When you speak to uh, that sense of divide in the country and how it's being reflected and, and seen in our present politics, what, how do I word this appropriately? What do you say or what do you feel needs to be those priorities then for the Senate? Like, what are those action items? What are those policies that can bring some of that consensus? Because very similar to what you shared, Torrance, you have gun reform that seems like an issue that many can get into. And you had the COVID relief bill that passed and the administration championed that it was bipartisan, not because of the vote, but because more individuals supported it than didn't. So where do we move forward here or what should a majority in the Senate be looking at here to say, here are the priorities that the country cares about. Here's how we move in the appropriate direction. <laughs> Here's kind of the, the paradox of what I, what I feel is that if I'm saying that the Senate can only change when the country changes, maybe the country can only change if the Senate changes which is circular and shouldn't work. But <laughs> I guess I don't, again, I don't have the answers to this. I don't know how you make a country undivided, but I think that if you are, I don't know, making it easier to vote, I think we could get closer <laughs> to stuff like that. Making right. it easier for people to participate in the process. We can get closer to maybe a less divided country, even if it doesn't feel that way. So but you don't I was do going to call it the disproportionate representation as a part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Like, like you, your paradox was just so fitting because that is what it is, but it's like <laughs> the, the obstruction in the Senate to pass any reforms about voting that would actually further enfranchise Americans to exercise their right. I think that we would see a change in representation. I mean, there's no, and I don't want to always bring it back to this, but there is a specific reason that, that Republican um, elected officials are saying that if HR one passed, they'd never be elected to office again, because they realize that once you enfranchise all of Americans who have the eligibility, they have the right to vote to actually have that, uh, to engage in that right and, and participate in the franchise that they will not be elected because they have suppressed so many votes. I think that we have a lopsided rep representation and it is a core of our issues. It is a core of our, our issues because we're not rep like why is it that HR one was so is so um, 
is so popular in polling, but we can't get it passed because of people who are elected to represent their people are not representing their people. Same thing with the COVID relief bill and same thing with the infrastructure bill. There is a broader swath of Americans who agree on a lot of the issues, but we have a bunch of obstructionist elected officials who are not interested in any bipartisanship or interested in pursuing the actual desires and you know wishes of their constituents. So I do think that we, we, we can't, we have to be honest about the conversation and not have it on face value and act like it's just because the makeup is 50-50 that that's actually representative of what Americans want because we know that not to be true. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up population and proportional representation because right now the Senate is also preparing for conversations around the statehood of D.C. and a lot of representatives... D.C. 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 <laughs> oh, and Joe Biden just came out in support. He did. Woo! And a lot of representatives in the House have been turning up a fuss saying it's inappropriate. No place should be, no place this small should end up being a state, blah, 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 blah. Um, but a lot of a lot of people highlight that the population of Wyoming and Vermont combined is the equivalent of D.C. So are you looking at and, and are we in a, a space where um, this is also a fun conversation that we can dive into. Um, our constitution is also starting to see a need to be revisited and the amount of representation needs to be talked about because when this document was written, it didn't anticipate that there would be 7 billion people globally. It didn't anticipate that you would have a country of this population and need a house and a Senate to represent it. Is the movement forward is, is the issue that we're seeing here the fact that we are not representing our our people and our country appropriately. Um, also, I am, and I don't. I I really am not someone who decides that everything has to be about race. But I'm not going to continue to have any conversations without the full context. And we must understand that, like you said, D.C. has the population of two other states combined in population, but it would become the first state that was majority people of color, and Correct. that is what bothers people. Yes. We can't get that twisted. We can't. <laughs> I want DC statehood because I think that because I, people who are like something that small that is such an idiotic. <laughs> it's the dumbest thing I've ever assertion heard. to make. It really is because America is not made up of just of spaces. It is made up of people, of citizens. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely asinine, and I am getting so pissed off even just thinking about it. Like those kinds of really dishonest and bad faith arguments about it. It is taxation without representation, and they need, they deserve statehood. Mm, don't get me started on DC statehood. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you, Torrance. You know, get that narrative out of here, Torrance. <laughs> that is not my narrative. <laughs> don't be putting that on me. <laughs> no, I know, I know. No, I know it's not. I know it's not. That's. Oh my gosh, I just got a headache. Honestly, hearing that, <laughs> I, I guess I haven't been paying attention to the to the conversations lately, and I. Again, it's not about space. It's about people. Mm -hmm. So what, again, I come back to what needs to happen for that to be the focus again. You have HR1 that is currently just stuck. You have this shifting math for the House because representatives are having turnover. They're stepping down. Other things are occurring. You have this growing fear that the Democrats won't be able to hold on to the Senate because of the um, states that are going to be up for election. If the conversation is centered on representation, on on movement forward, so that our government better represents us, how does the mess that we have right now do that? Broad question. I'm trying to get y'all to solve world world, yeah, world hunger, but it, it's a valid um. question to ask. I, I mean, like, I really do believe that we have to have a conversation, like, not, not a conversation, I need to stop saying things like that. We actually just need to start to have, taking action on the filibuster. Yeah. Um, because if we think after this broad, broad of a conversation about these things that we force the Republicans to have um, out in the open, if we lose control of the Senate, if we were to lose the presidency in 2024, like, if any of those things happen, we need not be naive and think that they will not absolutely go nuclear knowing what the future of the Democratic because they can hold off voter suppression right they can hold off us expanding the franchise with HR1 uh, they can they can continue to be successful with their voter suppression efforts maybe one more time but the demographic is changing 
It is getting more diverse. It is getting more brown. It is getting younger. It is changing. And if they want to continue to chase, if one party wants to continue to chase a, a, a growing or a shrinking minority, then let, let, it, let it be. But like it's not going to last forever. So either the institutions fail and other parts of our democracy end up forcing forcing action on that, or we actually take action on it knowing that, knowing what the will of the people is and knowing how the, the nature of our democracy is changing. Over time for me, over the course of really this year since since Democrats won those elections, I wasn't sure where I was at with the filibuster, but I've been I've been slowly getting more and more to the point where we need to I just think we need to do something about it. Because again, I actually don't know of course Republicans will do a bunch of stuff, but I don't know if what Republicans do if we got rid of the filibuster will be I don't I don't think I think the benefits might outweigh the harm that could it could cause, which is very I agree. I think it could be because everything that we have stacked up are grand systematic things. It's hard to take that away. Just look at Obamacare. It failed. It was one vote. It still failed for them to try to take it away. Because of one vote. I, it was because of one vote. I'll I'll give you that. But and a really bad administration. Well, that but Caleb, no... I wanna, something that I think you're something I think you're getting to that like I think that we like are hesitant to say sometimes like in politics, but like it's also because we're right. Yes. We should have a little faith because we're right. Our policies are popular because they work. Like that's why you over couldn't get time. rid of Obamacare because you're right over time because we don't ever get the chance to implement them. But when we do, they work and people see the benefit of it. And that's where I think that oh, with Obamacare, that's been the case, the growing popularity. I think that's going to be the case with the COVID relief. But I think like we have to have a little faith that like yeah. we're pursuing the right and just thing and that that should prevail for itself and speak for itself. But as your favorite country, and I, I would be <laughs> remiss uh, um, to not add Obamacare is in is becoming popular because we don't call it Obamacare anymore. Not because the, the legislation was ever bad. It's because the person that they tethered it to that the growing majority, well, not the majority, but a portion of the country hated was no longer in office. And we started calling it the Affordable Care Act. That, that was conjunction, the change. That was the change. Yes, that's that's very true, too. But also like in conjunction with like the myth of, oh, this is going to raise everyone else's yes. race. And this is going to make your like, and, you know, that being debunked over time. And people being insured, you know, like, but you're right. No, it absolutely, again, had to do with a narrative of racism against our former president. And owning the fact that Democrats get handedly whooped in that midterm election after passing that bill. So there is there is an understanding that, yes, we may be right, but at what cost? And, And that's partially why I come to the filibuster piece of I get it and I understand the frustration, but. Dear God, what it could have, what the experience could be like. Granted, I hope he crawls into his shell and I hope he crawls into his shell and never comes out after this term. But <laughs> what would life have been like if Mitch McConnell didn't have the filibuster? Like, let us not forget that the Republican Party went on a tirade and censured and tried to remove a man who had brain cancer from their party for voting against repealing Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, whatever you want to call it, because there was no replacement for it, which was his only ask. He would have repealed it had the administration done its due diligence to actually say, here's our replacement, here's what we want to do. But because there wasn't that secondary option, there's that. Do we need more of those? Do we need more... uh, McCain's do we need more individuals like that like you just showed us do we need more people with political courage well yes (laughs) that yes but I I think that like what what I'm getting at with the there's more benefit than harm if we got rid of the filibuster and start passing some of this stuff is that I think that no matter what happens whether it's a few years down the line and Republicans Republicans have power and do some do some crap or something, or I don't know. I still think Democrats will always well, I don't know about always, but I think that Democrats <laughs> will be in a better position at the end of the day, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Because if we pass this stuff, as Torrance said, we're right. We're it's all popular, it's what people want. Republicans repealing that at the end of the day puts them 
I think it's political suicide. You're shooting yourself right. in the it foot. Puts them on the, right. Even it if they repealed the it, we have ammo against them to win again. Maybe. But also context here too, the Republicans weren't the one who went nuclear. Harry Reid and the Democrats oh went nuclear. Went just off. But, but the Democrats were the ones who went nuclear initially. And what have been the repercussions of that? I, I agree and I understand the frustration, but I think we get into the space of we have to do it. There's no other option. We have to do it. And the literal next Congress after saw the usher in of the six years of Mitch McConnell, the withholdment of a Supreme Court justice nominee, the slow running of all of our judicial um, appointments under Obama, and these slow deterioration that we're now feeling the full effects of, that's my fear. That's my concern because we have seen to some effect what happens when you do this. And to ignore that just feels inappropriate. But there is honor in going out there and saying, this is what the American people want and this is what the American people are going to get and letting that lie where it does. I think that... I. <sighs> Yes. Okay. We can continue to say that Harry Reid is the first to go nuclear and we have paid the price for that sin, but our institution is deteriorating. And because of it, the sin. But one of the things that we are constantly accused of Democrats, I don't know why it's more, a more common narrative against Democrats than it is Republicans. Cause it's, it's more blatantly them, but they're like, well, Democrats can't get, can't get anything done. We can't get anything done. We can't get anything passed. And, but they never make that argument against, against the Republican party when that is most certainly the case as well. Like we've got to, like, like we said back when, after the election, we have got to follow our legislative agenda with political courage and allow it to speak for itself and let voters speak for it. And I I think that what, what else do we have to keep playing a short game of give a little, take a little on every two year, two years for elections. It's silly at this point. It's silly. The relief bill did. Terrell, I don't. I think it would be silly to ignore what Harry Reid did, but I also think this is a different situation. How so? Because I think in doing it this time, we could actually pass real change that affects Americans' lives positively and allows more people to vote. And at the end of the day, I don't know how, unless Democrats and they have in the past been really bad at messaging. It's a messaging problem. That's that's why that's why Republicans. That's why that's why the blame is more on Democrats about not getting anything done because it's a it's, it's because a Republicans problem. have great messaging and we don't. We're getting in there. But I think if because we, they... I, I really think, <laughs> I really think if we pass these kind of big ticket issues and people start to see it and start to feel it and their lives start to get a little bit better, even if Republicans took back power and did some cruel things, I think Democrats have the upper hand. And they didn't with Harry Reid. I appreciate that logic, and I appreciate that piece. But I, again, your favorite contrarian, um, (laughs) am stuck in in just context. Like, this happened with... um, President Lyndon Johnson. Granted, he didn't run for re-election because of other things, but that then ushered in some of the worst Republican administrations we have ever had in history. Nixon, Reagan. <laughs> it. My concern is, and always will be, and I think, Torrance, you said this well, I don't always mean to bring race into this, but it, it's a narrative and it's an inflection point that I have. And I, I think me not saying this is doing it a, a, a disservice my fear rather my fear is the policies that are coming out will negatively impact people who look like me if things go wrong and and yes i'll own maybe i'm operating from a, a place of fear but i like having some form of hope other than the supreme court who took decades to recognize people who look like me as a as more than property, who took decades to recognize that people like me could marry a person who looks like you, Caleb. Like yeah. it's it's those fears and those recognitions that I I guess I'm coming to realize in this pod too. So shout out to all our listeners for this epiphany. Um bring some sense of fear, right? And and again, I look at Harry Reid goes nuclear for justices and judges in our judicial system 
And the next thing you see is Mitch McConnell slowly starts to deteriorate that same institution. He goes for all of these different um, social programs and ushers in the struggle that we have today. It's, but I, you know, but I think that's really you. It's valid what you're saying. Yeah. It's very valid. But we, like, people, like, are, as black people, we have been, we have received the brunt end of any, like, you know, backlash from the Republican Party, especially when it comes to, you know, taxation, when it comes to, um, you know, social justice legislation. But they count on that. They mm-hmm. count on that fear to make us a little bit more moderate. They do count on that. And they have successfully done so yeah. with, yeah. you know, people like, you know, some of my family members, people in my life that I know are, are more moderate because they don't see the possibility because of the the box, the mental box that, you know, that kind of fear has put, put, put us under. And it's so valid because it's intentional. But like, that's where I think that like we, I mean, I think we all agree, but like political courage overall, right? And the political will is at the center of all of this. Yeah, no, I, I recognize that everything all of you just said. I think, I think what could be, even if it's somewhat different about this time, is we have a bill sitting on the table right now that could take away the advantage that Republicans have. Hmm. And that might be the game changer if we went forward. Mitigating Supreme Court challenges, of course. <laughs> yeah when did i become the pessimist in the group see but that's boys. see but here's the thing i don't know if, I, don't, I don't know if we're i don't know if we're keeping this in boys but I, you know i would say like if say you know we did pass hr pass hr1 and then it did face a supreme court challenge i think that i will give john roberts enough credit to say that i think that he understands the integrity of the court is more important than that and that it would be a i would also give it to neil gorsuch hell of a interesting I, right, like I right, like would you say like as Neil Gorsuch as far as his originalist or yeah. more textualist exactly. approach to it that he would he would not allow that he would vote with the liberals. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think that that is a probably a um, accurate assumption or accurate observation based on his rulings. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. Input. Yeah, yeah, we got. I mean, we're 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 in it, right? We're we're thick and we're thick in the mud, and that's that's why we're calling this the legislative mess. <laughs> Because it is a complete <laughs> legislative mess. I mean, I don't mean to, you know, bring it to a good, a good close on this segment, but I mean, seriously, what more can we say? It's a complete mess. Yeah, I, it's not like we're like some kind of think tank that's giving like fifty solutions to how to solve America's problems and the Senate problems and whatnot. I'm sure. What we've given a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe <laughs> we should be a think tank. We're dangerously likely to be a think tank. Anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, keep it in. We, <laughs> I it here. we, I, I don't know if, I mean, it feels like everything evolves around the filibuster and for the most part, it probably does, but maybe there's other solutions out there that chip away at some of the problems that we have that we're not thinking about that are maybe outside of the Senate, or maybe they are inside the Senate and we're just not. It just hasn't come to light. I don't know. There, what my point is, is there might be other solutions. But right now, this really feels like the mess centers around what we do next with the rules of the Senate. Mm-hmm. And one interesting thing that I'm shocked no one brought up, but might be a great closing thought. How does the age of the Senate, how does the age of Congress mm-hmm. impact this too? Uh, should we start having some robust conversations of the inaction that we're seeing is, and uh, Torrance, you kind of alluded to this, you have a lot of individuals who are in Congress who have seen the slow move of progress, but in their mind, things have gotten better. There, There doesn't need to be this huge pendulum shift where you have individuals like us saying, this might be better than what you experienced, but this is not acceptable this isn't where we need to be there's still progress that needs to happen um i don't know what are your thoughts y'all's thoughts um that's the name i just don't you know i don't want to assert to have the answer like i've said before i just yeah some action some action 
on any of our legislative agenda is better than none. Mm. It's, you know, none is what's unacceptable to me. And yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I am speechless, which God knows that that's never happened. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's just, it's just that, like, it's so frustrating because like I have 101 thoughts about it, but like, I'm not the one who has to have the political will to actually pursue one of those solutions that I think is a good idea. I, I, I said it once, I would like to see elected officials follow well, you know, the will of their constituents a little more, or actually have some political courage to pursue what they want their career be damned because they're not there for a career. That's the whole point. You are there uh, at a public service um, to your fellow Americans and your neighbors. So, Yeah, I'm feeling a little at a loss for words too. I also echo, first. echo what? Also a first. <laughs> really? I echo uh, what Torrance said as well. I think another point that I failed to mention in it too is like, Torrance, when you um, talked about like, you can't just putting legislation uh, for a vote on the floor is a little easier said than done because you don't want to like put the Voting Rights Act down and say, okay, let's vote for it and then have it be a colossal failure because we didn't do all the the momentum. We didn't get garner any momentum for it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Something that I think I was listening to Ezra Klein's podcast that, um, or it might've been Positive America actually, but they were talking about Joe Manchin and Joe Manchin's role in all of this. And Democrats, of course, right now are frustrated with him because he seems to be kind of on this bipartisan dealio and it's just a not, pain in the ass. It's a pain. Call it. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> but but if we're trying to get momentum for like a voting rights bill and stuff, Joe Manchin isn't the first step to doing that. What we do before it could affect how he votes. Mm. He's like that the third or fourth step in how we would actually pursue trying to get that passed, uh, regardless of the filibuster. And I just kind of wanted to, I felt like that was a point that needed to be made because I think a lot of people get frustrated with Joe Manchin. And at times, I don't know if, I think Joe Manchin is operating in a past Senate where bipartisanship was a thing. Um, but him coming out like after the infrastructure bill and saying, oh, I don't think the corporate tax rate should be this raised this high. Like that's people freaked out about that. But that's normal. Like he's the process. He's doing normal Senate behavior right now. Like there's actually nothing wrong with that. I think it's our frustration around him with the rule book. Hmm. But in terms of these big ticket items, like even though it feels like he's against us, he's not the first piece of the puzzle to actually getting something like that passed. Uh, yeah. I felt I, like that was something to make, even though I don't think I actually even answered your question at all. No, I, I appreciate that. And I think it, it hit at the question better because this isn't a um, mansion or cinema or Schumer even issue. This is truly a, a lack of understanding of the legislative process, a a deterioration of that process as well. And uh, as always, appreciating conversations with you all because it is deeper than just saying, oh, we need to be thinking about the age of our, inst- our senators and representatives. We need to be thinking about these specific representatives. No, we do need to be thinking about the, the rules that they're playing by, how they've been manipulated, how they've been taken. And then also... We need to be thinking, just as you shared at the onset of this, Caleb, we need to think outside of those institutions because it, those institutions are supposed to reflect our country, our people. And if people don't have access to do that, if they're not able to um, have a a real sense of representation, then this problem won't change whether we get rid of the filibuster or not. All right, uh, Caleb, take us on a tangent. My tangent this week will be short, sweet, and a little goofy. So there, some of you may have heard, I don't know, but there's a single deli in New Jersey, and it's on the stock market, and it's worth $100 million in the stock market. Now, before all of you who listen cry foul, um, which there's plenty of reason to, so you can anyways, um, 
really the stock is just propped up by a couple people who have connections to the deli that happen to be pretty wealthy. And I do not understand the reason for wanting to go into the stock market because they're not a company trying to raise money and grow. It's a single deli that maybe has $30,000 of profit a year besides this COVID year. And I just, I don't know why this is my tangent. I just got, went into like a rabbit hole of it last night and kind of was like, reading an article that explained it's 4k and it's 4k all these fancy words about how it wants to like please its shareholders and stuff and it's like yeah okay but you have like no shareholders and you're a single deli in new jersey and it's just so ridiculous and also distracting from the world at the moment that that's my tangent <laughs> i'll never pretend to understand the stock market <laughs> <laughs> me neither not not gonna lie <laughs> Not fully, at least. It wasn't a meme stock. Believe it or not, it was not a meme stock until this week. It had like 200 transactions of people actually trading the stock a week so it could stay in the stock market, which isn't that much, really. No, but still. And then someone wrote about it like a week ago. And since then, it's had like, I don't know, 50,000 transactions, which is a ton. But the funny part about it, it's not like a meme stock as in GameStop where people just start pouring money in and the stock price went way up. Um, it actually ended a little bit lower uh, than it's worth um, at the end of that week and all those transactions. So I don't know why you would even trade it, but it's kind of funny. I don't know. 13 bucks a share, I think, right now, if you want you want some of it. No, thank you. <laughs> Take us on a tangent, Tart. Um, I'll just give an explicit warning uh, because what I have to say is about um, – the racist class of um, United States Congress people, most namely uh, Representative Marjor Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, um, and the other members who are looking to join uh, the ill-conceived and, and now dismissed endeavor to the America First Caucus, um, pursuing their common respect for um, a country with a border and a culture that respects um, Anglo-Saxon political traditions. And to that, I say, fuck you. Um, because that is, this is some of the most blatantly racist bullshit that has been put out of this ridiculous party in the past five years. And that is saying something. To formalize it in a way that's, that suggests any sort of respect for um, the assertion or notion of specifically Anglo-Saxon political traditions, as if that's not the entire foundation of this country and its history and oppression of other people. This is complete bullshit. It is blatantly racist. And and I, and I you know what? I will actually give credit where it's due to the mainstream Republican Party for shutting it down as it was coming out of the hole. But quite frankly, we should have burned the hole like a bee's nest. Well said. Couldn't have said it better if I tried. Well, since you took the more angry route, I guess my tangent can be a little bit more playful. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. Been fired up about it. I've been no, so mad about this. <laughs> I um, I read the press release that came out, and yes, to everything you just said. Um, yeah, I'll head on an entertainment beat, honestly, and just go on a rant about RuPaul's Drag Race because the series finale is this week and you know the queens are out gap mick is amazing and inspirational and i'm excited to see all the things that she does um as for our listeners gap mick is the first transgendered um drag queen to enter into rupaul's drag race um but Stamps. also not letting off on simone who is an african-american drag queen who has shown nothing but the utmost regard and style and um took her platform to wear a fully white dress with six bullet holes in her back that said say their names so Amazing opportunities, amazing people. You got Rose, who is a Scottish drag queen. And then you got Candy, who grew up, um, as she says, in the hood and moved to Hollywood and is killing it. So I'm just excited. That's like a little fun thing that's happening. Also, I'm not a big RuPaul drag race person, but I watched a couple episodes <laughs> this season and fell in love with those four queens. They made it to the final four. And now I'm hooked. So here we are. Yes. 
Wow. Yeah. This, no, this I, I don't a... I don't watch it myself and I feel like a bad gay because of it. Like I'm not a, <laughs> a RuPaul fan. And every time someone asks me if I watch it, I'm like, I know, I know. I'm like revoke they can revoke my gay card now. <laughs> <laughs> so we went from the stock market to Marjorie Taylor Green to revoking the gay card. Got it. Yeah. And, and from, from now title. on, can we refer to Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> as she who shall never be named? Why should we even refer to them anyway? <laughs> yeah, them. That's, that, that's fair. That thing over there. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. I'm Caleb. I'm Torrance. And I'm Terrell. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week. <laughs>